We've been looking um, in this series through Genesis and asking the question, what does this old book, this ancient story, tell us about our faith today? We're looking at the foundations of the faith that we as believers in Jesus have inherited from the Old Testament. And we've asked the question, what does this book teach us about what does it mean to be faithful today? And this morning, we're going to keep asking that question. How does this story change or affect the way we engage with the world? How does this story actually motivate us or propel us out to engage and interact with the world around us? Jesus taught his disciples that they were to go into the world and to love the world and to pray for the world and to make disciples of the world. And he said, you will face opposition from the world. He calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. And so how do we live in that tension? How do we live in this tension of actually going into the world to love the world and yet also pulling away from the world so that we're not of the world? This text this morning, we're actually going to pull out some principles that will help us. You see, the Israelites who have been rescued out of Egypt and are on their way to the promised land are actually asking this same question. They know that they are to be a community, a people of God set apart from the world, and yet God is sending them into the promised land where their neighbors all around them are polytheistic, they are morally bankrupt, and yet they are to love them. So they're asking the same questions that we are. Now, this morning, we're going to do something a little different. I, I'm, I'm going to preach for about 20 or so minutes uh, through this text. We're going to draw out the, the three principles from this. But then we're going to spend about 10 minutes, and I'm going to offer some, some very practical applications about what does it mean for us as Story Church to apply these principles. So we're going to look at Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 17. We're picking up right after the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain has been banished from the, the, the spot outside of the Garden of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael. And Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zilah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and pipe. Zelah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zelah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, 
then Lamax is 77-fold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings us to life because it points us to Jesus. May we, through your spirit, see him even in this text this morning. In his name we pray, amen. Now, you might wonder, how are we going to take this genealogy and sort of spin it around and talk about what does it mean to engage with the world? And, uh, and so I want to point out to you in this text three principles. Uh, and these are the principles. I'll give you them up front. First is we need to connect with the good. Second is we need to confront the bad. And then finally, we need to convert the people. So we need to connect with the good, confront the bad, and convert the people. Let's start first. We need to see here that believers should connect with the good in the world, wherever we find it and from whoever it comes from. In last week's passage, we looked at the story of Cain and Abel, and we saw that Abel was a righteous man whose worship was accepted by God. And Cain, his brother, was faithless. And his worship was not accepted. These two brothers grew at odds with one another, and Cain murdered Abel. We pick up this story after God sends Cain away from the garden and into the world. And Cain has children, and those children have children, and those children have children too. And in the midst of this genealogy, we see that they build a city. And then they populate that city with culture. Look at verse 17. They built a city and they named it Enoch after Cain's son. And then later on in the lineage, we read that there were these three brothers, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. I apologize if I pronounce the names one way at one point in my sermon and another way at another way. I, I, they're hard to pronounce. But what do we read about these brothers? What, what does the text say that they did? They taught how to build tents and uh, care for livestock. They created music with the lyre, like a guitar and pipes. They learned to take the raw materials of the earth and forge them into instruments of bronze and iron. What do we see happening in Cain's descendants? We see city building. We see metalsmithing. We see the arts. We see animal husbandry. This is cultural formation. This is part of the design that God created human beings to do, to, to spread out on the earth, to have dominion over the earth, and to subdue it. We saw that in Genesis 1. Cain's descendants are doing the very good thing that God created them to do. These are good things. We should see them and connect with them. Christians, above all people groups on the planet, we ought to be the ones who celebrate goodness 
in creation, wherever we see it. Because this is what God designed us to do, to do good and beautiful things in the world. We should celebrate it wherever we find it and from whomever it comes, whether they're Christians or not. This is the first principle we see in this passage, that believers should connect with the good in the world, affirming the things that God himself would affirm. We take advantage of the goodness of creation all the time. Think about just in the last 50 years, the advances in technology that we have seen. I'm sure everyone in this room right now either has in their hand or their pocket a supercomputer. And this device, it can connect us with anyone around the world in less than a minute. We seemingly have access to an infinite supply of information at our fingertips. This is something that was not even conceivable 50 years ago. And yet every one of us in this room takes it for granted. It's a modern-day miracle. It is good. And yet we see Steve Jobs was not a Christian. The founders of Google were not Christians. And yet they produced something good that all of us engage with. We are indebted to the secular enterprises that have given rise to so much good in the world. But I often hear from people, even feel it in my own heart, a pull away from the world. Not as though we could literally separate ourselves from the world, but there's a part of us that, that tends to want to isolate ourselves from certain parts of the world and certain people in the world. Is that true of you? Do you feel that pull in your own heart? Maybe there's a group of people that you work with that you wouldn't want to associate with outside of work hours. Maybe you only listen to certain kinds of music or radio or news because you don't want to consume the same kind of information that the world is consuming. Maybe you don't trust experts and professionals because they don't approach their work coming from the foundation of the gospel like you approach your life. I'm not saying that we should accept everything that the world offers us, but we ought to strive and seek out where there is goodness and truth in the world. We should celebrate it when we find it. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, that whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely and commendable and excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. This is true not only in Christians' lives, but in the lives of non-Christians as well. Whatever is good, wherever you find it, and from whomever it comes... We should celebrate it. That's the first principle. In the face of our temptation to isolate from the world, this passage reminds us that we should connect with what is good in the world. The second principle you might think is opposite. I mean, certainly it sounds opposite, but believers should confront what is bad in the world and take no part in it ourselves. 
In addition to seeing the cultural excellence of Cain's descendants, we also are reminded in this passage just how much sin has corrupted these descendants and passed down not only from Adam to Cain, but from Cain to his descendants after him. In particular, we come to the end of this lineage and we learn about a man named Lamech who, in verse 9, we read, took two wives, breaking the pattern of monogamy that has been there from the beginning, from God's design for marriage. Remember when Adam was first created, God said to him that it was not good for him to be alone and he created a, a, a helper who is fit for him, Eve. And we read there that in this first marriage, we find the pattern of how marriages are supposed to look. And Jesus himself picks up this pattern. And Paul picks up this pattern. And he says that for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two of them shall become one flesh. This is God's design for human flourishing within a marriage. And yet... Just a few generations after Adam, we see this design falling apart. I know that there have been people that have pointed out the hypocrisy of Christians, where they say, on, on the one hand, Christians insist that the Bible teaches that marriage is between one man and one woman, and then they point out, well, your own Bible even records countless times men having wife after wife and woman after woman. Even the great King David, in all his glory, had multiple wives. It's a fair argument. It's certainly true. The Bible does have both of those things in there. However, it's also true that almost without exception, every time someone in the Bible operates outside of God's design for marriage, it does not end well for them. One author put it this way, nearly every polygamous household in the Old Testament suffers most unpleasant and shattering experiences precisely because of this ad hoc relationship. The Bible does not affirm this behavior. It confronts it. We see here also, it's not just sexual perversion that we see. We, we see Lamech celebrating his murder of someone else. Look at verse 23. Lamech calls together his wives and he sings a poem to them. And in that poem, he boasts about the murder of a young man. He claims that his offense was more than tenfold worse than Cain's. He's celebrating his sin. We should have no part in that as believers. Instead, we ought to confront whatever is bad in this world, taking no part in it ourselves. Fortunately, Christians today, especially in the Western world, downplay the role of personal holiness when it comes to living out our faith. Often we, we celebrate the initial conversion of a non-Christian becoming a disciple with Jesus, but then we take little care in actually seeing that disciple progress and mature in their faith as they walk in the newness of life that was purchased for them by the blood of Christ. Instead, in many ways, the lives of Christians today 
do not look much different than the lives of non-Christians. And I'm not talking about you know, using cuss words or use, watching the same TV shows as everyone else. I'm, I'm talking about deeper things. Both Christians and non-Christians, we are casual about our sexual expression outside of a covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. I'm talking about both Christians and non-Christians seeking an identity in this world that comes from our own opinions or our own feelings or our own achievements rather than receiving an identity from God himself who declares who we are in his sight. I'm talking about Christians and non-Christians joking around about having too much to drink and making a fool of ourselves. Talking about gossiping about friends and family slandering a coworker, bearing false witness by spreading misinformation. Friends, if, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. We are called to confront the sin in the world and take no part in it ourselves. Yes, we do that with grace and gentleness. We, we earn the right to confront sin in the lives of our friends after building trust with them. But let us first remove the plank that is in our own eyes before we call out the splinter in our neighbors. There are two kinds of hypocrites in the church. There's the good kind of hypocrite and the bad kind of hypocrite. The bad kind of hypocrite knows that the Bible calls them to live a life of holiness and yet goes and lives just like the world. They are pretending to be someone that they are not. But there's a good kind of hypocrite. This is someone who knows that the Bible calls them to a life of holiness and confesses that their flesh still desires to live like the world. And they throw themselves down in humble faith saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let us strive to be the kind of community of good hypocrites, not merely taking no part in the patterns of the world, but demonstrating to the world that there is forgiveness offered to everyone who comes to him in faith, confesses their sin, and turns to Jesus. That's the second principle. We should confront sin and take no part in it ourselves. Finally, the third principle is this. Believers should seek to convert the people of the world, offering them the only hope that we have. Up until now, we focused on Cain and his lineage, showing how there is both good and bad in that family. But we need to remember that within the family of Cain, there is no hope. There, there's no hope in Cain to get rid of sin. We will not find relief from the curse of the world in Cain. No amount of city building or cultural formation, no amount of education or wealth or status or accomplishments will bring us relief from the world. Nor will severing ourselves from the world, isolating ourselves from the world, trying to exist in this moral conformity, trying to be the best person, that's not going to lead us to relief from the world either. Rather, we must look for our hope in someone else. 
verse 25 tells us that Adam knew his wife again, and she bore another son named Seth, saying that God has appointed another offspring instead of Abel. This should remind us of the the promise of God to Eve that he will give her an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. Seth is the offspring through whom we receive the relief from the curse. And in fact, at the end of chapter 5, which is another genealogy following the line of Seth, it concludes with Noah. And Noah, a descendant of Seth, is described in this way. Noah will be the one who brings relief from the curse of the ground. Now, we aren't talking about Noah today. We're going to look at him next week. But all over the New Testament, Jesus himself compares himself and says, I am a type of Noah. Noah was a deliverer and savior for the people of his family. And Jesus, too, likewise, can save us from the coming judgment. The disciples of Jesus are called to love the world, to be be in the world, but not of the world. We need to remember this principle. Our ultimate goal is being in the world to lead people to the one who offers them hope to lead people to Jesus. This is what it means to convert someone, to to bring them to a saving faith in Jesus, to lovingly invite them to trust in Jesus. This is what happens in our passage. After Seth is born, the offspring who will lead to salvation, we read that at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord This is conversion language. This is what the New Testament says. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the message that we offer people today. Those are the principles. Connect with the good, confront the bad, convert the people. This is what we must do as a church to engage the world around us. And I'm not the first person to come up with this. Leslie Newbigin, who was a a missionary in India in the 1950s, uh, when he returned to the UK in the 1970s, he recognized that the, the church in the West had been declining, especially declining in their missionary engagement with the culture around them. One of Newbigin's students and protégés, Michael Goheen, wrote a book and and summarizes this missionary vision of Newbegin, and he writes this. In order to mediate the call of Christ faithfully, that is, in order for us to actually convert people and invite them to trust in Jesus, the church must assume a twofold posture to its culture. On the one hand, the church will identify with its culture, living in solidarity with it, affirming it, while mediating the call in terms and forms that are familiar to it. But on the other hand, the church will be separate from its culture, living in opposition to and rejecting its idolatry, mediating the challenging call to repentance and conversion. And when we lose either side of this double stance, we compromise the church's witness. 
This is what we have to do. How are we going to do it? There's four direct applications. There's more than four, but I've got time to give you four right now. First, as a church, we must adopt a missionary posture with our neighbors. And by a missionary posture, I mean that we need to recognize that the church does not belong to any of the cultures of this world completely. By our nature as citizens of heaven and new creations in Christ, we do not belong to this world. We are outsiders who are here to love our neighbor. Like a missionary who is called by God into a foreign land. Why? To love those people and then to invite them to Christ. That should be, that must be our posture. What does it look like then to be a missionary in Mayfield? It looks like being a missionary in any other part of the world. We must approach our neighbors with an open mind, asking them questions about their culture. We need to learn their own stories, learn their belief structures. We need to learn what they care about, learn even the language that they use to talk about things in their life. Why? So that we can actually share with them the good news of Jesus in a way that resonates with them, using the language that they use and addressing the needs that they feel. Do you think of yourself as a missionary sent by Christ our King into your neighborhood? into your workplace. We must adopt a missionary posture toward our neighbors, approaching them, yes, with love, respect, honor, compassion, and with urgency. Second, we must resist being influenced and shaped by the world around us. And we do that by being counterformed or conformed to the image of Christ through a robust discipleship. We must resist being influenced by the world, being shaped by the world. How? By being counterformed by Christ. Look, we don't realize the many thousands of messages that we hear all around us every day. That, that tell us what to aspire to, that tell us what we're supposed to look like, that tell us what we're supposed to dream for, that tell us what we're supposed to think about ourselves, that tell us what the goal in life is. That is what is surrounding us every day. It's on our TVs, it's in our radios, it's on the songs that we sing and listen to, it's in our schools, it's in our books that we read, it's on the lips of our friends and family. Our neighbors all around us are living within stories, whether they're self-written stories or stories put upon them by others. But everyone is living a story that is shaping who they're supposed to be in this life. But Christians do not live in that story. We belong to a different story, the story of Jesus. We need to be shaped by that story. 
We need to have that story tell us who we are, what we're here to do, what we're supposed to be. And so through our gathered worship on Sundays, in our community, in our story groups, when we gather in community throughout the week, in our own personal times of devotion and prayer and reading God's word, those are the places in which we will be formed, whether into the world or into Christ. We must resist being shaped by the world through being conformed to the image of Christ through a robust discipleship. That alone will counterform us in this world. Third, we must create and sustain relationships with non-Christians if we want them to come and know Jesus. We must create and sustain relationships with non-Christians if we want them to know and trust Jesus. This is perhaps where I personally feel the most pull away from the world and into my Christian bubble. It is, it is hard for me to create and sustain relationships with non-Christians. They're messier relationships. They take longer to establish commonality. It's a little bit more uncomfortable to be around non-Christians. I mean, I'm just being honest. It's hard. Maybe you feel the same. But if we want to obey Jesus' command, not only to love our neighbors, but to make disciples of our neighbors, then we must have friendships and relationships with non-Christians. Like, there's no way to go about it in any other way. This will do two things. First, we'll become more aware of their language, their their stories, their way of living in this world. So we'll be able to actually engage with them on a level that they're at. But then secondly, being friends with and building relationships with non-Christians, it'll allow them actually to come and hear the gospel. It's intimidating to come to a new church. It's more intimidating to come to a church when there's 12 people in the church. But it's less intimidating to go with a friend whom you trust, whom you care about, to church. Are you that friend for a non-Christian? It is through ordinary relationships that we will actually have the opportunity to share with them the gospel. Scholars agree that the early church did not grow as fast as it did because of paid professional preachers. Every scholar agrees that the early church grew fast because of ordinary lay people, congregants, members of the church, interacting with non-Christians on a daily basis. One scholar wrote this, that it was not through formal preaching, but the informal chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and in wine shops, on walks and around the market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel, 
They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Consequently, they were taken seriously, and the movement spread. Are you friends with non-Christians? What do those friendships look like? Do you prioritize time with them? This is an area that I need to grow in. Perhaps we can grow together as a church on this. We need to do that. We must do this if we want them to know Jesus. Finally, we must embrace the path of a suffering servant in this world. We saw in this passage how those missionary principles, they help correct false postures towards the world. So rather than isolate from the world, we're called to go and celebrate the good things in the world. Rather than assimilate with the world and look like the world, we're called to separate from the bad in the world. There's one other posture, though, that the church historically has taken with culture, and that is to lord over culture through power. Whether it's through political or cultural influence, Christians, unfortunately, we have a tendency to desire power over the world in order to conform them to Christianity. We should have no part in that. When we look at our Savior, the one who brings hope and relief from the curse of the world, he said no to power and influence. He did not take the path of of popularity. He chose the humble path of a suffering servant. He rejected political and cultural power. He died in the place of sinners, laying his own life down for his friends. This is the path that we must embrace as a church and as individuals if we actually want to point people to their Savior. The world will tell us that if we want to grow, if we want to gain influence and popularity as a church, then we must showcase our excellence, our strengths, our quality programs and attractions. Then people will see us and notice us and want to be part of us, right? That's how small businesses work. But that's not how the church grows. Jesus says, follow me to the cross. Scripture calls us to boast in our weakness, not in our strength. If we're actually going to invite neighbors to come and know Jesus and embrace Jesus as their Savior then we must embrace the same path that he took, which was as a suffering servant. This is who Jesus is. This is our Savior. This is their Savior. So let's embrace that and show our neighbors who he is. That is how we are going to reach our neighbors. That's all I've got. I hope that we can be a church that embodies this. I hope that we can be a church that recognizes the role that we have in Mayfield and in Lyndhurst and Highland Heights and Pepper Pike and Gates Mills and the village. All over, we have this calling 
to be missionaries, to lead people to Jesus, we must become friends with them. We, we must resist the formation that they're in, but inviting them into Jesus, inviting them to experience his grace. It's only going to come about if we embrace this path of a suffering servant. Let's pray.